You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. Good morning, everyone, or at least good morning from Seattle. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Dr. Janine Mitchell, and I am both the organizer and the moderator of this first panel today. I'm grateful for the chance to be back at my alma mater. I completed my PhD in the interdisciplinary program in Near and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Washington, and my own research and work has focused on water, energy, and development in the South Caucasus and Turkey. I started my work on the ground in the South Caucasus 13 years ago, and previously I worked uh, in energy research at Columbia University, focusing on the Black Sea and Caspian regions. And most recently before COVID, I worked for a United Nations Development Program water project in the Kira River Basin on the ground in Georgia and Azerbaijan. And my research interest and focus now is on environmental peace building. So I'd like to start things off by briefly framing our discussion today before I introduce our participants. The title for this panel is The Future of Nagorno-Karabakh, Interdisciplinary Perspectives on Peacebuilding and Development in the South Caucasus. So for scholars and observers of the South Caucasus, as well as the broader area of study that is encompassed by this conference, the topic that has been prominent on the agenda over the past six months is uh, the 44-day war in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which concluded in November 2020 with a Russian-brokered ceasefire agreement between the parties. And of course, there's been a lot of talk about the new status quo in the region created by the end of hostilities. But of course, there is a difference between the end of war and the long process of building peace and the loss and the sensitivities on both sides of this conflict uh, in the recent war, as well as over the three decades of conflict that preceded it, are profound. The ceasefire agreement uh, makes provisions for Russian peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, for the opening of transport and communication links, but there's really much to be done. We're at the beginning right now in terms of, of building sustainable peace and fostering social and economic development in the region. So this is the topic of our discussion today. There have been many excellent panels and discussions on why the war happened and the new status quo uh, from political and legal perspectives. And today uh, we, will, we will likely incorporate political perspectives to a degree, but we're considering the current situation and what comes next for the region, and how we can start to move towards the kind of dialogue and social and economic development that contributes to sustainable peace. Peace is a process, and it is a long one at that. And certainly it's important when looking at, at any post-conflict situation not to have naive understandings of the complexities of, of that process or the time that is needed. But at the same time, where are there opportunities for dialogue and for development? And what needs to happen to foster that? Uh, this is one of the key questions that, that I hope we'll address today. 
I conceptualized this, this panel as actually a roundtable, which would probably feel more like a roundtable if we were meeting in person. Uh, but we have academics and experts with interdisciplinary backgrounds here today, sharing their perspectives on the future of Nagorno-Karabakh in the region. This is a conversation. It's, it's not a presentation of papers. Uh, it's people speaking from their professional expertise, uh, but in dialogue, in, in classic roundtable style. And while the panel is interdisciplinary, it cannot and does not claim to be comprehensive or all inclusive of, of every topic. Uh, indeed, post-war rebuilding, rebuilding in every sense of the word, is a, an incredibly complex set of processes. But I do believe that the expertise that is here today will bring insight to this audience as a group that is united by its area studies focus, and that it's important to be having these conversations in the context of area studies programs. And uh, I also hope that some of the conversations will hopefully spur ideas for further academic work and academic attention on the region through this process of peace building. Perhaps the only silver lining of COVID is the fact that we can meet virtually when we are located in different geographies. I think every single one of us on this panel uh, is located in a different time zone, and I am very grateful for the participants who have agreed to, to share their time and expertise with us today. I'd like to introduce our panelists now. Armand Gregorian is an associate professor in the International Relations Department at Lehigh University. He received his PhD in political science at Columbia University. His dissertation was a study of escalatory effects of third party interventions. He also holds an MA in international relations from the University of Chicago and an undergraduate degree with a major in Middle Eastern studies from Yerevan State University. Professor Gregorian has published articles on interventions, ethnofederalism, the relationship between war and democracy, and US foreign policy. His publications have appeared in International Security, the International Studies Quarterly, the International Political Science Review, and Ethnopolitics. Faris Husseinov is Professor of Finance at the College of Business at North Dakota State University. He teaches various finance courses in corporate finance, investments and portfolio management, and international finance. His research interests are empirical corporate finance, corporate governance, and international finance. He currently works on projects that are related to capital structure decisions, corporate tax avoidance, and price informativeness of financial markets. Fariz is also the faculty fellow for the Chali Institute for Global Innovation and Growth, where he studies post-war economic and financial development policies. Emin Milli is the founder of Restart Initiative. He is also the founder and former director of the largest independent media in Azerbaijan, Made on TV. Previously, he was the director of the Friedrich Ebert Foundation in Azerbaijan, during which he facilitated exchange between Azerbaijani and Armenian journalists, scholars, and activists, and was a coordinator for the International Republican Institute in Azerbaijan. He holds a graduate degree from the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. With that, I would like to go in alphabetical order and ask our, uh, ask our participants to, to make their initial comments and I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Armand. Okay, uh, hi everybody. Thank you for organizing this uh, really interesting and timely panel. And uh, <clears throat> I 
uh, all of us have received a set of questions around which we can organize our our presentations, our our comments, and uh, you know they 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 are enough uh, to prepare uh, to our presentations. Uh, so I'm going to focus on a particular aspect of those questions, which is what is um, fundamental about the prospects of peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan and what are the key factors impeding it. I think uh, the question about what is necessary for durable peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan is simultaneously an easy one to answer and a very difficult one to answer. Uh, I know this sounds like a cliche, but uh, it, is, it is indeed uh, very true in this case. It is easy to answer in one respect because we know what the fundamental cause of this conflict is. Now, I've had opportunities to speak about this in other fora, and I firmly reject any ideas about you know, ancient antagonisms and uh, you know, cultural incompatibility and all that nonsense. This is clearly a conflict about the status of Nagorno-Karabakh. This is what has uh, what has caused the dispute between Armenians and Azerbaijanis and what has produced the, the, uh, the violent encounters over the last 30 years. Now, if that is, uh, if that is the cause of the conflict, then uh, finding some kind of a compromise on the status of Nagorno-Karabakh obviously should be the solution. Um, now, this is uh, this is in in some ways again as i said is an easy answer but uh, of course uh, the idea that we can we can find some kind of a formula today that would be simultaneously minimally satisfactory to armenians and azerbaijanis also is the crux of the problem i don't think there is a formula today today we're in a in in the position yet where we can find a formula that would simultaneously satisfy uh, the minimal demands and expectations of Armenians and Azerbaijanis regarding the, the status of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, the war usually brings positions, conflicting positions closer. I mean, this is one of the, one of the consequences of war. I mean, one of the reasons why parties fail to arrive at a negotiated solution, at a negotiated bargain, is because they disagree on the distribution of power, they disagree on what can be attained on the battlefield if the conflict was not solved peacefully. So war reveals that information, war removes that disagreement about the distribution of power, and parties come to, to an agreement more easily once they know what they can get by force, right? What, what is within the within the reach in terms of the distribution of power. Uh, unfortunately, that, unfortunately, that does not always work that way. It doesn't always, it is not always sufficient. It may be necessary, but not sufficient to end conflicts and, and to lay the groundwork for, for a durable peace. And um, the, the problem here is that, uh, I, I think one of the problems is that the positions have not moved uh, uh, closer um, sufficiently between Armenians and Azerbaijanis for for a uh, genuine for a genuine acceptance 
of the need for a peaceful solution, which would which would be based on a on, on some kind of a compromised uh, concept of uh, of the status for Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, Armenian position has been moderated somewhat, uh, quite naturally, and uh, it would be quite strange if it was not moderated at all. I mean, before the war, uh, the talk in Armenia was a lot more. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot more audacious and a lot more hardline. And there were people who were arguing that not an inch of land can be ceded. And there were even people who were arguing that the occupied territories should, should remain under uh, Armenian control indefinitely. You don't have that now, uh, certainly. And uh, you know it would be strange, as I said, if you had uh, such claims and, and so articulations of such positions. But, uh, but it is also true that uh, you know, there isn't any conversation in Armenia, any active conversation suggesting that the Armenian side might be willing to agree to any status of Nagorno-Karabakh that keeps it uh, within Azerbaijan. Now, a lot of people probably understand that the, the aspirations for de jure and independence for Nagorno-Karabakh are, are at this point, especially after the war, um, you know, not, not entirely realistic, but it doesn't mean that they have also reconciled to some kind of um, a position which envisions Karabakh status as something inside Azerbaijan. And there is a dichotomous, dichotomous uh, approach to the idea of a status. I mean, the, the political status can, of course, be, it doesn't have to be dichotomous, it's usually on a continuum, uh, but in the Armenian mind, it's a dichotomous problem. Either uh, Armenia, either Karabakh is outside of uh, Azerbaijan's jurisdiction, or if it is not realistic, if it is not possible, and eventually if Karabakh is to come under Azerbaijani control, under full Azerbaijani sovereignty, then no matter what's given, it's not going to be credible, it's not going to be trustworthy. Armenians there cannot be cannot be safe. So they will flee, they will leave uh, Karabakh and, and they would not uh, risk living under Azerbaijani control. Now, the problem is exacerbated. Of course, I mean, this is partly the consequence of the, the war and, and, the, and the conflict over 30 years um, as well, right? Uh, violence and hostility usually exacerbate such feelings and such fears. Now, in the case of Azerbaijan, the position uh, also naturally, I mean, this also happens after wars, the victorious side stiffens its bargaining position. And this, is, this has happened in the case of Azerbaijan too. And uh, as far as the status of Nagorno-Karabakh is concerned, I mean, we've heard uh, Ilham Aliyev, President Aliyev making statements about the Karabakh conflict having been resolved and there is no need to talk about any status and uh, Karabakh Armenians are Azerbaijan citizens and that's the end of it, right? So that's, that's also a, a position, uh, that's also a change in a position that has been affected, affected by war. And again, I mean, when you look at the combination of, uh, of these things, you realize that the uh, the conversations, any any search for a formula for the for the uh, for the status of Nagorno-Karabakh that would be mutually satisfactory is has has not become 
has not become any easier. Now, uh, what's the solution then? Are we, are we doomed to live with this forever and have rounds of war and, and uh, cold war or cold peace and, and, and living constant hostility in, in blockades in, um, you know, uh, in, in a situation where we have to spend all our resources on military buildups, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think there, this, this sort of pessimistic conclusion is warranted either. I think we can be creative and we should just approach this a little differently. So it is natural, it is very intuitive for people usually to think that you know, this, is the, this is the cause of the conflict. We know what has caused the conflict and that's what we need to solve in order to, to end the conflict. I think uh, given the problems that I, I um, uh, I laid out, it is probably a, a good idea to, to think about this uh, somewhat differently. I think instead of trying to solve the status problem uh, before we have peace, uh, we should probably try to have peace before we solve the status problem. I think that is, that is my approach. I think the positions um, of the parties are, are still too far removed from each other. There are too many wounds. There is too much distrust. And, and, uh, and the hope and the idea that we can find a formula that will be mutually satisfactory given the current circumstances is simply utopian. It's not realistic. I think we're, best, uh, we're better off uh, thinking about this in a more roundabout way. We should circumvent the status question and the status negotiations now, and we should put the normalization of relations between Armenia and Azerbaijan and creating that trust and signaling to each other that we're, uh, we're, we're interested in a solution and in a durable peace. I think that should come first before we, before we are able to talk about the status. There's a lot more that uh, I, could, uh, I could say about this, but I have already, I think, spoken too long. So I'm going to stop here and maybe I'll have a chance to say those things um, in, in, in the process of the conversation. Thank you very much again. Thank you very much, Armand, for those comments. And I do indeed hope that we can come back to this discussion of um, how we, how potentially they, we can uh, pursue peace before having a, a resolved uh, status question. Um, so certainly we'll come back to that in the discussion. I'd uh, now like to turn to you, Faris. Thank you, Janine. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for inviting me to speak at this event. Thanks for organizing it. And thanks for joining to listen our, to our conversation. Um, I'm very pleased to join the other speakers to share my views uh, on achieving long-lasting peace between Azerbaijan and Armenia. We have a long way to go, I know that, but I truly hope we'll get there one day. Um, I can say that the ceasefire agreement offers some opportunities. I think Armand talked about the major disagreement, and I agree with him that it's going to stay there for, uh, for a while, but I will focus on the, his second part of his speech that how can we start laying the building blocks for a durable and organic peace? And, you know, this uh, obviously um, 
there, there, there are theoretically and practically several components of durable peace, and I want to talk about them. So first, obviously, you know, we need to restore the rule of law and the ceasefire must hold and any future armed conflict should be prevented. I think we've, we've been relatively successful in that so far. The second, the leadership on both sides should build upon the agreement and lay out a vision for future long-term peace agreement and the general, their vision of the region. Uh, uh, and, and both sides need to build a narrative that the agreement actually works and new hostilities are avoidable and certain cooperation between the communities at micro and macro level, which I will speak a little bit about, uh, are possible. So it is important that both sides invest in building that narrative of hope so that optimism uh, about coexistence grows faster than the pessimism. So this, this involves convincing the local communities to live in each other's neighborhood peacefully and forcing foreign players to accept this agreement as a valid basis for a future peace agreement. But there are two other components that need to happen. So obviously economic activities, and I, I wanna spend a little more time on that. Um, the, the, such activities should resume so that people see tangible initial early signs of return to some kind of normalcy. So, so that they shift their focus on maybe improving people's lives and focusing on prosperity and gradually building some relations across the communities. So the early signs of, of this would be building infrastructure. So people see that there are some activities going on, people see roads are built, construction is done, and, uh, and then maybe some sort of agriculture activity, I hope to see in the summer, and some other, some other infrastructure utilities related um, you know, activities. And Azerbaijan, for example, is expected to spend about $2.6 billion during 2021. This is important because people need to see that some economic activities are happening, but the economic development is not numbers game. It's not a statistical experiment. So people must be at the heart of this process. So we need to see uh, internally displaced Azerbaijanis to come to, to, the, to, to their area, to the back to their homes and engage in some economic activities. So they, they, they wanna be, they, they have to be part of this development. I know it will take several years because of the, the mining process and so forth. But uh, at the same time, I know that the, the plans are made, at least the, the process to start from this year and will be several big problems. Now, before I get into the, the relations, I wanna say, why should Armenia and Azerbaijan be interested in economic cooperation? What is the win-win proposition? Well, the South Caucasus, if we, we add Georgia, the total GDP is less than $100 billion. And the GDP per capita is below 5,000 in each country. And I'm actually adding oil and gas infrastructure. But uh, this GDP per capita has remained for many years, remained between 4,000 and 5,000. So that the area needs uh, some kind of new catalysts, kind of new change synergies that will bring more investments. And uh, if we look at the Armenia, for example, that was left out from a lot of infrastructure projects, um, you know, in, 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 in the entire uh, lives of these two, three uh, republics, Azerbaijan, for example, could attract $32 billion foreign direct investment. Georgia could attract 20 billion, but Armenia just 6 billion. And that, so, so basically we need some, some new era in this region and uh, that, that will bring more investments. Just, to, just look at the Turkey, for example, and it's bilateral trade relations with its neighbors. 
The least trade that they do is with Georgia is $14 billion, which is a thousand times bigger than what the, they're doing with Armenia, just $14 million. That's just a, so much lost opportunities in the region, not just for Armenia, for everybody, that uh, I think we need, to, we need to think how we can, we can now that so much money and investment left on the table that we need to bring it back. So at two levels, we can talk about it macro and micro level. I'll talk about micro level first, that we will bring the communities across the border and uh, just, just start some kind of trade relationship, business relationships. So data shows that, show that the most Armenians in North Nagorno-Karabakh area, they worked for public sector. They relied on exports to Armenia and maybe some money coming from outside. So we need to figure out how do we make sure that these people can restore their ability to, to, to generate income, maintain their purchasing power. And there are some discussions that I'm aware of that are, are, are built around the early business transactions, maybe between Armenian and other Bajani communities along the lines of peace and cooperation. So these are, these are very good. I think we need to build upon that. And I hope with summer, uh, as agricultural activities pick up, maybe, maybe more of these we'll see this discussion at least, and then maybe we'll see some, some tangible results in that. Now, uh, we need Azerbaijani internally displaced people to come back, right? Just to restart their economic activities and, uh, and, and earn some money, maybe participate in activities. See, the surveys among Azerbaijani IDPs show that most of them see economic improvements in their lives and in the liberated lands as the second most important reason why they want to return back. So economic factors actually inspire them to go back, cultivate the land, also improve their lives. So there are a lot of, and they're fully aware that they may have to engage with Armenians. So, so, so the economic uh, activities are important here. Now at the macro level, we get to think a little bit of bigger picture and, and maybe it will be kind of long-term, maybe not necessarily now, but a framework um, similar to what, uh, let's say, Western Balkans investment framework has, that where the regional powers come together and uh, Turkey, Russia, and EU and US can participate, fund specific projects that will improve people's lives on the ground. So, but these initiatives shouldn't create a, a trap. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it later, but arguably Bosnia is the most successful post-conflict economy, but they suffered from lost decades because of the aid trap until they brought in private sector. So, so we need to think about what areas the private companies can be involved. And, and obviously energy, utilities, construction, these are, these are obvious, but more recently we see in post-conflict economies, digital broadband infrastructure and mobile communication network development. This bring a lot of, of private companies because they see demand is there. There will be people, they need to communicate and maybe financing digital, you know, financial sector. Uh, and, and these are the early areas that the companies would like to go in. And I know Armenia is, is, is very successful in innovation and digital uh, space. So they might, some early, you know, companies, younger startups can serve the area's needs better maybe early on. Now that one thing that agreement says, the point nine, economic and transport links in the region shall be unblocked. And transportation and logistics is a huge area that the companies would like to participate. So if we have this infrastructure link, railroad between Zangilan and Nakhchivan, let's think about the big picture. The railroad that crossing 
to Armenia, linking Zanglan and Akhchivan of Azerbaijan, can be a part of um, economic activity between Asia and Europe. You know, when, when, uh, when evergreen container ship was stuck in Suez Canal, once again, we saw that the global trade relies on very limited supply routes, and we need alternative supply routes. And in this area, railroad is a big, uh, big, big, big option. And I know Turkey invests a lot in that to connect Asia and Europe. So if you think this little small railroad link and put in a big picture, you can see that our, both Armenia and Azerbaijan can participate in the value chain for the finishing up, finishing up maybe some of the unfinished goods before they enter Turkey or they go to Europe. And I know China is investing a lot in Turkey, Chinese companies to do that specifically, to take off some of the manufacturing and bring that area. And I think this is an opportunity for Armenia and Azerbaijan to, and, and with Turkey and Russia probably, to form some kind of qualifying industrial zone that similar to what Jordan had, had with Israel in 90s, it was very successful, uh, but there are some, some challenges with that too. And the one thing made it viable because they got some export privileges from EU and the US. So that's another area that could be worked. Now, one more area is that this area is mountains area, and there's recently have been a lot of developments in the figuring out how to develop mountains areas. And international organizations, private companies are very interested in, in participating in that sustainable development of mountains areas. And I think in Central Asia, there's there have been a lot of activities on that. That could be transferred, some of that activities could be transferred and built in this area that will attract private capital. So I think this and, and definitely across the board economic cooperation, like using the natural water resources, joint use of water resources is important. Now, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm realist. So I know that economic factors are not the only factors leading to peace, but we know the economic issues are generally at the heart of the conflicts and economic integration is one of the ways we can bring two communities together. So you remember that most hostilities uh, start from economic demands and it actually played a, some role in Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. So in 1980s, when people in Yerevan demonstrated against Soviet plans that were polluting the environment, they also claimed that Nagorno-Karabakh Armenians lived in worse conditions, which, which was not completely true, but anyone would agree that the Soviet administration's top-down approach in economic programs were not effective. So in this regard, I, I, I think we also need to go back and see how we can deliver economic gains for the people of the area. But I think it won't be happen without reconciliation process. So that's another last component that I wanna to touch on that we cannot forget what happened. In the past. We can't just unknow what we've, we've gone through. So I think that, that, that we, we, we just need to take a baby steps in that, maybe form some kind of truth committees build some dialogues. And I think dialogues among scholars is very important. Look at what areas of cooperation actually would bring some tangible results. And, 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 and increasing these constructive dialogues are very important um, and convincing the foreign factors that we need these dialogues. Um, and you know we need to, to work toward a plan that after five, 10, or maybe 15 years later, we won't need Russian peacekeepers. If we do that, if we still need, that means we failed at, at building durable peace. So we'll, 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 we'll uh, again, we will leave yet another problem for our younger generation to deal with. So I think that's 
that's what I want to say to start, and then we can build upon this maybe later and answer questions. Thank you very much, Faris. Of course, uh, the economic dimensions of, of peace building is something that is often talked about, but you put some, some concrete figures and uh, some concrete ideas uh, into that. And I hope that we can elaborate on that in our discussion as well. Uh, and now I'd like to turn the, the screen over to Emin Mili. Thank you very much. Um, so I, a lot of what I would like to say, I think both Arman and Faris were telling, so I will not uh, repeat them, but I will share a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, when, when we were, and I agree with both of them, actually, so it's a very uh, interesting panel when we uh, agree with, with each other rather than disagree. Um, I still want to share a couple of thoughts and it's about, um, you know, where we are now and how we can move forward. Um, I think that when the war ended, there was some kind of vacuum. There was this new situation. Uh, there were a lot of hopes or some hopes. Um, and I think there was a very important time uh, that I think we started to lose. Uh, and in my view, where we are now, when, I am, when, when I'm observing the rhetoric of uh, government of Azerbaijan, when I uh, observe the political um, discourse in Armenia um, and what happens globally, uh, I think that um, the dialogue is failing. So uh, there are uh, people or forces or figures who try to, or you know, were thinking about what to do and how to position themselves in this new situation. I think, um, understandably, maybe, maybe naturally, um, they started going back to their you know, entrenched positions. So 30 years of hate, uh, two wars didn't uh, pass uh, you know, in vain. And we are now in a situation where unfortunately these traumas in, in both societies do not let us to create and to develop a new software that would enable um, a dialogue that would work and that would lead us to peace uh, agreement um, and to durable peace uh, uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, why is it happening? I think that, uh, again, as I'm, as I'm saying, it is maybe um, many can say that there is nothing to be surprised about. Um, and, uh, you know, after the war, the certain situation, you know, is um, is created, and um, and you know, when I, uh, I, I, to be honest, I was um, expecting more, um, how should I say, uh, more uh, from Azerbaijani government, um, uh, a little bit different uh, rhetoric, and I think that if we're talking about durable peace, uh, it will be important for this peace. Uh, to come if we are talking about real peace to come from both you know government of Armenia and government of Azerbaijan. Uh, civil societies are important, scholars are important, and I will talk about it what we can do. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, governments will make it or break it. Uh, and in this case, I think there is more responsibility 
on the side of Azerbaijani government. And as Victoria's side, the government of Azerbaijan, uh, in my view, uh, needs not to make the mistakes that the Armenian government were making um, in 90s during the after the victory, Armenian victory in the First Karabakh War. Um, so uh, can we influence it? How much we can influence it? Uh, this is a question. I mean, how can we influence um, the government of Azerbaijan? How the political discourse in Armenia can be influenced? Um, this is also, I think, very important um, question. And I think that uh, from perspective of civil society, of scholars, of experts, uh, I think that we need uh, to have understanding that uh, both Armenians and Azerbaijanis are falling back to their old habits. Like there has never been really, um, you know, powerful pragmatic forces on both sides who would manage to find the dialogue. You know, I, I, I visited Armenia twice. Uh, in 2003-2004, when I was head of uh, Azerbaijani office of um, Friedrich Ebert Foundation. And I remember how difficult it was to bring Azerbaijan journalists, uh, experts, uh, scholars to Armenia, and how it was viewed back then in Azerbaijan, but still it was possible. Uh, and this visit was agreed on the level of both, you know, uh, ministries of national securities of Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, and I think that now uh, there is a opportunity, there is still a possibility uh, to, uh, to start to build the network of pragmatic forces, uh, both in Armenia and in Azerbaijan, um, who not necessarily agree with each other, you know, on the uh, status of Nagorno-Karabakh, but who understand that uh, Azerbaijan, Armenia, sooner or later will leave, will have to leave in peace as neighbors. Uh, and um, I'm not talking about the network of uh, tree huggers. I think that it is very important that when we build this coalition network or group of people uh, who can sit together and really can start thinking about how to build this dialogue, what are the methods of talking to each other? What is the strategy of actually creating the narrative, the discourse, which can be spread in Azerbaijan society, in uh, Armenian society? And um, basically how we can build software uh, for this new dialogue uh, that could work because the current dialogue is, is definitely not working. Um, and I think that um, the only thing that we can do, and I still, I will be honest, I'm, I became very pessimistic in, 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 in recent weeks, uh, but I think that we need to find the courage. Uh, and then uh, Fariz um, said it already that there should be some uh, group of scholars, experts, policymakers from Armenia, Azerbaijan, and maybe with involvement, some experienced, you know, uh, international experts. Uh, who would sit, sit and, um, and start, um, you know, discussing various ideas that, um, uh, and policies that, uh, and projects maybe that we could suggest um, uh, to government of Azerbaijan, to government of Armenia and to uh, international uh, institutions.
Um, and of course, even as part of this discussion, I see that it's very important to discuss and agree on 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 the strategy of this dialogue on what we want to achieve you know how we want to start presenting um a reasonable and i would say adequate uh, armenian thinkers to azerbaijani society and vice versa and how we can together uh start uh, global conversations and send messages to you know western partners to russia to turkey uh to interested parties um uh, in order to um, again to develop a different narrative, different discourse that is currently uh, obviously non-existent, um, and the last point maybe um, regarding, uh, especially I would like to say last couple of words about the the, the Western powers. Uh, you know, it has been. Um, since you know, I've been uh, active in uh, in trying to build some dialogue, uh, you know, between Arme Armenia and Azerbaijan before, but also in, in recent months, uh, and I've been talking with a lot of people who are involved in this in policy making level. Um, uh, what what I have felt in Western capitals that there is kind of uh, this feeling that. Um, the Armenian Azerbaijani nations are not ready for dialogue. Uh, and this is why the ideas of this dialogue, um, they are not met with a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, basically, what I feel is, you know, more reservation. And I think it's a very serious and f f uh, very serious mistake because uh, the, uh, the commissions that uh, Fariz was talking about the kind of uh, common work that I'm talking about, uh, it is necessary. We, I think we're already late about it because it's necessary. There is no need even for physical meetings now. So there is no, I think that uh, we need to start this and we need to start finding the right people from both sides uh, to do this work because these two nations, you know, they, 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 have, they have never been ready for this uh, dialogue and they always when they tried they failed and and i think this is the right moment uh, to start it and um and i think that um uh us eu and european countries this is where they can help a lot uh by uh, supporting this by encouraging this and by trying to help to reach the messages of these scholars experts civil societies to back them up and deliver them also to the government of Armenia and Azerbaijan. Thank you. Thank you, Amin. Uh, I think you make a very interesting point that it's necessary to, to build networks that, that shape the dialogue and that we need to think strategically about what are the methods and, and strategy of bringing together people to build this, this new discourse. Um, and actually, you know, one of the, the first questions that I wanted to pose to the panelists, we're now entering our, our discussion mode, um, was about the, the constructive role that external powers can play. 
in this conflict. Obviously, um, as is the case in, in many conflict situations, there has been the involvement of external powers, you know, particularly in the, in the military dimensions of, of the war. Um, Turkey played a, an important and, and decisive role. Uh, but when we look at the post-conflict reconstruction and, and peace building process, um, what, what else can external powers do to facilitate uh, to facilitate this process and to play a constructive role? So, I mean, talked about this a little bit. Um, Armand, if it's if it's okay, maybe I'll I'll come to you and then uh, then have Faris talk uh, a little bit more about the potential role of um, of these external powers in trying to fuel economic investment uh, as well. Sure. Uh, actually, that's a question that Emin um, uh, and I were uh, simultaneously very interested in. And uh, as a result, we ended up uh, co-authoring an article that was published in Newsweek, and it addressed precisely that question, or at least an aspect of that question. Clearly, when you have a situation like the one between Armenia and Azerbaijan, with all the mistrust, all the hostility, uh, you know, external powers can play a role in, in mediating, in facilitating certain things, in providing resources for certain projects and, uh, you know, trust building, um, uh, trust building steps. Uh, so these are things that are quite obvious and one does not need to be an expert to appreciate how important such external uh, uh, actions, such third-party actions can be. What is less obvious and less visible is how third parties sometimes can harm things. And one thing that has always been on my mind as, as a concern is whenever you have great power competition in some region where there are conflicts, that competition often has detrimental effects on the attempts to build durable peace. So, um, you know, it, it, it generates all sorts of bad incentives for the parties themselves. It affects the domestic politics of the, the countries involved. It creates opportunities for them to play off the uh, one great power of, uh, of the one great power of the other. It gives them an opportunity to resist certain things which they wouldn't be able to resist, I mean, because it may be politically unpalatable and whatever, but, you know, if, if countries like Armenia and Azerbaijan were to face a, a, united, uh, a, a united front, so to speak, of, let's say, Russia and the United States on what needs to be done for a durable, durable peace in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, durable peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan, I think that peace could be more easily achieved than if they are in a situation where the United States and Russia are competing for influence in the in the South Caucasus. Thank you. Faris, would you like to speak uh, a little bit more about some of the economic dimensions of, of external involvement in the region? Sure. Uh, I, I agree with Emin and Arman. And, and, and I've always thought that whether we've fallen victims to the regional interests of great powers for, for last few decades and and have they been 
constructive or destructive. And, and they, they, there's a role for them to be constructive, but they can also be, there's a role for them to be constructive, but they can also be destructive. And we saw that early on in 90s and maybe in 2000s, the big powers tried to do something. And um, for example, the last really big push from the US was the 2009 protocols, Turkey and Armenia border openings. And we saw there's a lot of scholarly activity around that. And surveys actually showed that some people that were uh, certain segments of Armenian community, uh, the, the, they were willing to, to start the relationship with Turkey. But, but um, I, I, I think certain external factors and elements that were, were, were designing this to avoid solving the big elephant in the room, which is the Nagorno-Karabakh, because that was the root cause of the, why the borders were closed. So I think that sometimes big uh, regional powers are trying to maybe push in one aspect without actually trying to trying to solve the big problem. But now any there are two drivers of any any forces of any change, push and pull, right? So the push maybe comes from the bottom, pull for, comes from the top. The re, this regional powers maybe or US and EU can play a role of pulling, pulling force, the playing the pulling force where they will put these two countries together and say, we would like you to cooperate in these and these aspects. And probably the easiest is the economic because you can offer both sides win-win in economic. It's really difficult when you start talking about the status. That's, that's, that's very hard. But in economic perspective, you can, you can do that. You can say, here's a gain for you. Here's a gain for regional powers. So Turkey, Iran, and maybe, and, and Russia. And here's the gain for EU and US. But this area needs capital. This area needs investments, right? And if we talk about, oh, Azerbaijan and Armenia will meet that investment needs, it, it, it won't happen. It, it, it will be very limited. And plus, it will be one-sided. What isn't it for our country? When you have this pool force coming from the top where the US and EU are really interested in actually coming in, not, let's say, being a destructive force after this ceasefire agreement, but actually build upon that and say, what are the elements we can actually move faster, quickly? And I would think that's more an economic, as I said. So how can we do that? And there are, as I said, macro and micro level initiatives that they can take. But if they're gonna blame us, Armenia and Azerbaijan, that, oh, you guys can't actually find a common language, you can't live together and this and that, they're actually not investing in the constructive dialogue. They're actually, to me, are investing in, in, in actually destructive dialogue. So I just want to see from the Western and maybe regional powers to see what can we do for you to actually build upon this rather than what is in it that we, we take a position and as Armand said, compete with each other here. Um, I, I, I think that's, we're not gonna go too far with that because every one of them will pull us to a different direction. Thank you. I mean, did you want to, to jump in on this on this discussion of, of external powers? Anything to add? Uh, Arman Fariz told it. I think that, you know, I, I, I do think that US and Europe can play very constructive role if they positively engaged with Russia and Turkey in the region, 
something that as Arman said, we mentioned this Newsweek article. And uh, this is very important. And I also think that um, I would wish both, you know, American, you know, politicians and European politicians um, and uh, governments uh, to try to be more immune towards the, you know, local lobby uh, interests and constituencies that sometimes are not helping, or I would say quite often are not helping uh, with their lobbying activities to push Armenia, Azerbaijan towards peace uh, and development, but rather actually uh, with bashing one or the other side kind of approach, um, just put more fuel on the fire. Uh, and I think that um, this is soft power tools that, you know, Western governments have in, at their disposal. I think this is the one area and one conflict where this can be used uh, and also universities uh, like, you know, Heritage School, Harvard, Oxford. Like, I think there's various European American universities as neutral academic institutions could also step in uh, and and share their resources, especially at this stage when, as I said, you know, uh, we think of governments as, you know, uh, there are also people in Armenian and Azerbaijani government, and very often they also have no time and have, they have different pressures to think also intellectually, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, how Armenians should live, let's say, in, in, in Karabakh, what language, you know, how this, there are many, uh, very technical questions, but are very important, for example, for Armenians feeling secure in Karabakh. Uh, and this has never been really discussed. This has never been really put on the table in the form of documents, in the form of policies that can be rejected or adopted or, you know, uh, adjusted uh, by, by governments or could be part of, you know, intellectual input from Azerbaijan, Armenian, and global intellectual communities. So I think this is where, where US and Europe can do a lot, uh, both on the level, as I said, uh, governments, you know, politicians, uh, politics, and, and universities, academia. Thank you. And if anybody within the, the roundtable has any points that they want to follow up on or questions that they um, that they want to ask, feel free to, to jump in. Don't let me over moderate <laughs> things. Um, but uh, if if we've if we've covered that topic, then actually, I, I want to um, go to this micro level, which which Faris, uh, you talked about a little bit. And um, I mean, I know that that you've been having discussions about um, startups and investments and and trying to promote, um, shall we say, a, a culture of and opportunities for innovation within Azerbaijan and, and the region. Um, and uh, of course, digital broadband, a lot of these um, opportunities for for tech, uh, for fintech, you know, financial technologies uh, hold great promise for trying to foster economic development in the region. Um, uh, perhaps Emin and, and Faris, and certainly Arman, if you want to jump in on this, um, could you elaborate a little bit on, on what you're seeing um, in terms of the opportunities for having technology and, and investment in tech really impact 
uh, individuals on the local scale? Yeah. Um, so when we talk about uh, development of Azerbaijan, and I think that, uh, you know, um, quite often when we talk about Azerbaijan, everyone is uh, focused and it's you see it in headlines, in media, it is as a conflict with Armenia, it's uh, democracy issues, election issues, or, or human rights issues. And these are all very important issues and actual defining issues. But I think Azerbaijan, a lot more is going on in Azerbaijan. And there are areas like entrepreneurship, like, uh, you know, digitalization that um, that is uh, has a lot of challenges, but there are also success stories. And what is happening in Azerbaijan, let's say, in the area that you mentioned, Janine, is, um, for example, there have been some very successful entrepreneurs who, who are not just in Azerbaijan anymore. So they became global. They are creating companies, you know, in US, in Europe. They are hiring people in Azerbaijan for their companies in US and in Europe. Um, Arman maybe will talk about Armenia. So I've been following with great, uh, how should I say, interest and admiration, the success of uh, uh, tech sector in Armenia. Uh, Armenia has become very successful in this field in, in recent years. Uh, a lot of new companies have been born there and they went global uh, and they bring a lot of now revenues to Armenia and to their owners. Uh, and this is one area, the digitalization, uh, entrepreneurship, where I think that we do need to involve these people also to dialogue. We need to, uh, if necessary, even to political dialogue. I think we need to involve these people into joint projects that also, um, you know, government of Azerbaijan and Armenia could support or, uh, you know, uh, institu institutions like USAID, SIDA, so the development agencies of, of uh, Western countries could support or EU could support with some funds. So to foster these joint business projects, joint uh, entrepreneurship. So when we talk about peace, I think we should not just limit ourselves uh, with the people who have been working on peace for last 20, 30 years. I think this is a big problem. It's not a, uh, it's good. We need such people, you know, experienced experts, scholars who know what they're talking about when they, when they talk about peace. But if we talk about peace strategically and seriously, we need all kind of different uh, powerful allies in both Armenian and Azerbaijan societies. And, you know, many people know that Armenia is not just Armenia, it's, it's global. Armenia is very global as a community. But the same happened with Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is also quite a global country. You know, there is, um, uh, you know, uh, 20, 30 million Azerbaijanis living in Iran. There are, uh, I don't know, two, three, how many millions in Russia, uh, in US, 100,000. So it is quite global. And in the last 30 years, there are a lot of also Azerbaijanis uh, moved abroad. And I think that we need to combine and bring together this, you know, entrepreneurs people who live in Azerbaijan and Armenia, but also who live beyond Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, and I think that here I see a lot of opportunities. And when I said that we need, for example, these commissions or groups that we will discuss what exactly we should do, 
except finding the right language of talking to each other, to public, you know, Armenians, how they could talk to Azerbaijani public to, to, to have sympathy and empathy and, and actually breaking this ice of and software which has been downloaded to Azerbaijan and Armenian society, which see themselves each other as enemies or mostly, I would say. Um, so these kind of people, when they will bring in, they also bring in uh, their own networks, their own communities. Um, and um, when they come in, when entrepreneurs come in, so they will uh, give great contribution into our discussions and hopefully policy papers that we'll develop about what kind of you know tax regime we need to have you know in in, in Karabakh you know in um, what kind of customs regime what kind how we should uh, what should we governments do so it is easier for these people to organize this business project to trade between each other uh, and so on so that's why it's very important to kind of take this monopoly of talking about peace and dialogue from very limited number of people, very respected people that we all know and respect, but we need to broaden this circle. This is why entrepreneurs are one group that I would say we need especially target and especially these IT entrepreneurs who have totally different mindset and resources, honestly. Thanks, Amin. Faris, would you like to, to add to that? Thank you. So I agree with everything Amin said. Um, the, the, the problem here is that when, let's say, young entrepreneurs or private sector tries to build some kind of economic model, business model, they need to receive cues from the regulatory bodies and the government or policymakers. They need to understand what is the framework, what are the roadmap that they can start putting these uncertain pieces together and think where we are headed and can I build a business model around that? And that's what the tricky part here is that, that without getting those signals and cues from maybe the governments on both sides, it's really difficult. What will happen is that they'll be constrained to their own views and their own, let's say, silo. How can I serve, for example, how can I serve uh, people that will go back to Jebrail? How can we serve the people that will go back to Zangilam? but maybe not necessarily how they will interact with the Armenian community in Nagorno-Karabakh or across the board. So this, this, this is kind of a uh, evolving process where the government essentially needs to send signals that we will be supportive of any business ideas that will bring these communities together. And I believe younger generation is very agile, very, very, uh, uh, I, I would say pragmatic in, in, in using technology. Uh, in that regard. And I think uh, Amin mentioned several things and FinTech and, 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 and other, let's say, um, digital tools that we can use, not necessarily bring people face-to-face -to -face together, but virtually. A lot of business transactions are done virtual today and people can hire different people around the world without even seeing them in person and they'll do job for them. And Azerbaijani people, younger generation right now, they do a lot of various types of technological uh, related technology related jobs all across the region right so so we we i think younger generation when they when they have an idea they they, they don't want to be limited with a certain small area they, they want to be selling their ideas and products with the bigger to the bigger markets and i think when you have 
when you talk about younger entrepreneurs in, in, in Azerbaijan, they may say, oh, this market is small. But when you talk about South Caucasus, when you talk about a lot bigger, larger investments coming to the area and the area serving the bigger region, now you see their economies of scale. And the younger population, younger, uh, let's say, entrepreneurs will be more hopeful to operate in that environment because there's a lot of growth potential. So I think some of this is happening, I would act in minds. I, I, I know that, um, I can't give you a lot of details, but I know that there's some kind of discussion going on. How do we interact these communities, Armenian and Azerbaijan communities, to exchange money, to financial sector to serve each other so that you have this business to business transaction. You have maybe consumer to business transaction that is happening in digital, digital payments in FinTech that you mentioned. This, this is the area that probably needs to be invested. And I think exchange of each other's money maybe is being involved in financial sector of each, each other. I think it's a good place to start. We know that Azerbaijani and Armenian entrepreneurs, they, they, they have a business relationship in, in, in Russia. We know Turkish and Armenian have a lot of business relationship, right, outside the region. So it's not that we can't do that there in the area, but uh, I think we, we need to build upon that and, and look at what entrepreneurs and what ideas actually will serve specifically bringing these communities together and whether they both countries, policymakers would let entrepreneurs do their job because they're best at doing that. But they need to be, they need to get those cues from the policymakers. Thanks, Faris. Arman, may I abuse my, uh, my privileges for just sure. a moment as the moderator? I just wanted to add one anecdote to this before, before we go to you. Um, you know, in my previous work uh, on the ground in the South Caucasus, I, I uh, directed stakeholder engagement for a very large transboundary um, river management project. Um, so I'm always interested in, again, the impacts on the ground, on communities, but also looking at um, the different needs within those communities, looking at gender, for example. And uh, in my recent research, I was, was put in touch with people in Georgia who are doing some very interesting work actually in collaboration with, um, with Armenian institutions and financing in the Abkhazia region uh, in, in Georgia, which of course is a, one could describe it as a, a frozen conflict of sorts. Um, but there are programs that are focusing specifically on women and specifically on um, displaced people uh, in order to give them the skills in, in technology and IT to be able uh, to engage in, in the economy. Um, but also the, the programs bring uh, different groups together. And um, there's some really, I think, exciting examples of how that, um, that cooperation and that skill building is, is bearing fruit. Uh, in 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 bringing people together, and um, I, I just wanted to to highlight that one anecdotal uh, example. Um, please, Arman, go ahead. Okay, so first of all, my expertise in in those matters are uh, extremely limited uh, compared to what Faris and and Amin can say about it. So I'm going to refrain from 
any any conversation about the details of this micro level economic uh, engagement and cooperation i'm going to talk about something slightly different uh, i i don't want uh, uh, i don't want to sound like i think it is unimportant or secondary by no means that is the case but there is an issue of sequence and i think it was already visible in both Amin's and, and Fariz's uh, comments, and I want to just amplify this point. Certain things have to come before micro-level economic cooperation, and they're going to be done at the level of governments. Certain things have to, to be done at the level of politics before economic cooperation can be jump-started. I think this is a case where politics is prior political efforts are prior. Now, I know that in my initial presentation, I argued that, uh, you know, we should try to circumvent the status issue and focus on small steps and building trust and cooperation and mutual incentives for cooperation. That is all true. I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, backing away from that comment, but that doesn't still, that doesn't mean that I'm talking about politics being less important or these political steps. So, the, the steps about political reassurance and, and mutual adjustments uh, are going to be absolutely necessary. And the one thing that is a, a matter of deep concern for me, and here I'm going to amplify something Amin said, is that things could be done uh, in the immediate aftermath of the war that would be in this direction. And I'm sad to say they were in the opposite direction. Now, uh, I'm somebody who usually in these fora and in these conversations takes the position of criticizing his own side and, and allowing Azerbaijanis to do the same for themselves because that's, that's much better for, uh, for a constructive dialogue. Uh, but if I may be allowed to say a couple of words about, uh, about what I think the Azerbaijani government and Mr. Aliyev have, have done wrong, um, I think, I think the, the POW issue is, is poisoning the atmosphere, making it very difficult for anybody in Armenia who is, who is inclined toward cooperation, toward dialogue, toward, uh, toward combating uh, a certain type of rhetoric in Armenia and certain type of attitudes, uh, their positions are being uh, damaged and quite weakened uh, by, by this issue. And, and again, I want to emphasize that it is, it is a very painful issue in Armenia, uh, ma making uh, any, uh, any optimism and, and uh, any constructive attitude uh, much, more, much more difficult. The issue um, of the, the trophy park, again, I don't want to exaggerate its meaning. I know there are such trophy parks elsewhere and Azerbaijan and Azerbaijani society and even the government can be forgiven for a little bit of gloating and for a little bit of, you know, euphoria after the victory. Uh, but I think, um, you know, it would be wiser to, to focus on something other than that. And again, if the aim is to build durable peace and to reassure the adversary rather than celebrate victory for its own sake, I think uh, that trophy park also didn't help matters. Most importantly, and I think this is, this is probably the most serious issue. Um, the, the kind of signals that the Armenian side and the Armenian society receives about Azerbaijani intentions with regard to Zangezur, with regard to Sunik, 
uh, are very bothersome, very disturbing. And uh, it is, you know, there are mixed signals from Azerbaijan. Sometimes, uh, you know, Mr. Aliyev makes statements that, you know, Azerbaijan has no territorial claims against Armenia, and I'm aware of those things. But some of his other statements about what needs to be done and how these things can be done even by force uh, in, in Zangezur, uh, they are received, uh, you know, it's, a, it's very, very sensitive for Armenia. If you don't need to be a, a, a seasoned strategist to understand the strategic importance of that region for Armenia and any notion and any fear that Armenian sovereignty may be compromised over that, that area makes it virtually impossible for anybody in Armenia to speak about peace and reconciliation and that sort of thing. Now, of course, uh, uh, the Azerbaijani, uh, some of the steps um, uh, that have been taken by the Azerbaijani government are not the only problem. Uh, certain things in Armenia are very problematic as well. Most importantly, the, the political chaos uh, in, in Armenia and, uh, and the lack of a credible force um, or at least uh, the lack of a credible force that is visible now uh, that, that can lead that process of reconciliation and dialogue with Azerbaijan. Uh, I, th I think that also is a, is a major impediment. But uh, one last thing I will, uh, I will re-emphasize again something Amin said Azerbaijan has been uh, the victorious side and more depends on Azerbaijan in this regard than on Armenia. And if, uh, if uh, you know, uh, people in Azerbaijan who, uh, who agree with me that this dialogue is necessary, who agree with me that uh, we, we have to find a way because uh, we, don't, we don't have a choice. Uh, nobody is going to have a final victory in this enduring rivalry, neither Armenia nor Azerbaijan. And we can't just go on and, and, uh, and, and kill each other every 15, 20, 25 years. We have to find a way. And, and if there is that understanding and realization, we should, uh, we should work with our sides to pull them back from this more aggressive and, um, uh, and less, constructive, uh, less constructive political attitudes and, uh, and steps and, and prod them in a different direction. Thank you. Before I, I give the chance to Faris and, and Amin to respond to that, actually, Arman, I'd like to follow up with you um, with a question from the audience okay. that asking how, um, how you think the upcoming elections in Armenia are going to play a role in, in future peace building in the region um, between the two countries. It's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, if you look at the at the polls, uh, Pashinyan is still the Pashinyan and his party are still the leading uh, the leading uh, force, and predicted to to win the elections. Now that would be quite the strange outcome. I mean, the reason that we have preterm elections in Armenia is because of the catastrophes that are uh, put on the door of Pashinyan and his government. So. We have uh, uh, snap elections, and the same government that is responsible for this, that is seen by the public as responsible for these catastrophes, gets elected. Now, what does that indicate? It indicates a very unfortunate and, and I would say even bizarre political reality in Armenia, whereby um, you know you have essentially two poles. Again, there are other forces, but they're not visible yet. They have not made 
a bid for the elections yet. Some things may change still in Armenia over the next couple of months. But the two visible polls in Armenian politics now are Pashinyan and uh, forces that are associated with the previous two presidents, Serge Sarkisian and Robert Kocharyan. And, uh, you know, it is quite clear that um, uh, a large number, uh, a large segment of the Armenian society considers anything preferable to uh, Kocharyan and, and Sarkisian, and they would, they would support even this failed government. And again, I'm saying it from their own perspective. A government that has wrecked this catastrophe is preferable to the return of the previous status quo. And uh, unfortunately, if, if the choice is between these two forces and we have elections, I don't know what those elections will, will resolve and what kind of mandate they will give to whoever wins these elections. So at this point, I'm not terribly optimistic. But as I said, uh, things may change. Uh, some other forces may emerge. There's an objective demand for a third force in Armenia uh, that, is, uh, that is not painted by the problems of either Pashinyan or the, or the previous two regimes. So um, I, hope, I hope there will be, um, you know, that, that demand will meet its supply in the next couple of months. Although again, it's very little time and it's difficult to say how, how quickly that, uh, that process can, uh, can unfold. So I, I guess, you know, I, I'm at this point, I'm not very optimistic about the, about what the elections, what, what uh, windows the elections will open as far as dialogue is concerned, as far as the bolder action is concerned on foreign policy and on uh, dialogue with Azerbaijan. And again, especially given the, 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 the comments I made about the Azerbaijani government's steps as well. Uh, Emin and Faris, would you like to respond to any of that? And then we have um, another audience question that I'd that I'd like to turn to after that. I I just wanted briefly to say, and I, I actually was going to ask Arman about the elections. I think that's a big unknown, big uncertainty, and maybe you know we have a celebratory side and revengeful side, and that's that's the difficulty of bringing these two together, uh, especially when you're going up to elections in Armenia where both sides are trying to send signals. And when, when either we need to see some, um, some kind of certainty, we need to pass that. So two things need to happen. We need to pass that cliff, let's say, that, 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 that um, um, uncertainty in, the, uh, in Armenia. But also we need to have people to come back to the areas, to come back to the liberated areas that IDPs, we, we, need to, we need to have them there and more people as they grow, as they build some activities. I think it's, it's organic. These things will take time. It's, it's, we just went through a really bloody war and it will take time. And I, I, I know that on both sides, we have this narrative of, again, celebratory, over, over excessive celebrity, and then maybe revengeful. But I think with the, with the people on the ground, if we have them uh, start seeing the actual results in the ground and maybe we will start investing on on a narrative that bringing communities together but we just i think we're just we're just not there yet and and it will it will unfortunately will take time which which is any any after any conflict takes time 
And and I think regional, the big play, external players that we talked about, they they didn't serve these communities well in the last 10, 15 years uh, with their lack of engagement in peace uh, negotiations or maybe enforcing um, some of the earlier conversations. So I think I think there it, it will take time because because there's no bigger income encompassing power to pushing these two sides. Both sides are trying to be in their own own narrative. So I think it will take time and 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 hopefully a year from now some of these uncertainties will go away. I mean, would you like to share any thoughts on that? Just briefly, I think that yeah, this is a lot of um some language rhetoric is unfortunate that you can hear on Azerbaijan Armenia side, but I think that those people uh, who share these commitments that we have to and we must start living as neighbors uh, in peace with each other, and there is no alternative to it, I think we should not be at the end of the day be discouraged by this or saddened. Um, and we have no matter how hard it is we need to start developing this new software for dialogue that I was talking about, because in my view, it just doesn't exist. And once we develop that, then also hopefully, you know, the governments um, could use it uh, also in Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, but as I said at the very beginning, uh, I am also pessimistic, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't find courage in ourselves and do our part you know even if there is a very small chance that it could work we should i think make our contribution and maybe this software that we will build uh if our generation or if governments uh, which are in power in armenia's budget now they will not use it and our societies will not use it maybe time will come when someone will start taking it and upgrading it further and finally using it so it will happen sooner or later. And I think what we can do now is really come together and start building this software, despite all the discourse in Armenia, Azerbaijan, that is disturbing. And there will be, I think, even more disturbing situations and you know discourses and rhetorics. But I think we should exactly think about how we can make ourselves immune to this and do what we must do despite of all of this. So our, our time is running short and I have tens of questions that I wish we could have gotten to uh, and I hope that we will have subsequent opportunities to, to talk about some of the important issues that you all raised. So what I'd like to do in this last five minutes is um, there was a question that was posed to, to Arman, but uh, I think all of you could reflect on it if you wanted to. I think it touches on some of the things that you've mentioned already um, and it's about the process of reconciliation. And the question is, what if the process of reconciliation is championed by states rather than people? Would that take precedence or will the people's grievances um, prevail over pragmatism? Um, and so what I'd like to do is, Armand, let's start with you. Um, you can address this question and also make any, any last um, reflections and remarks and then we'll um, go around the rest of the table and then we'll have a hard stop in four minutes. I, I know we, we have very little time, so I'll be quick. I think, um, I think the states have a very, very important role to play indeed. And I think we're not in a position where 
you know, we have this irreconcilable, just deep hostility between the between the two two nations, and uh, you know, the states are going to force some kind of a peaceful uh, peaceful resolution, or uh, you know, they are going to forbid certain things. But what states can do is facilitate such dialogue, and we should have a realization. And I've spoken about this you know, on uh, in other um, on other occasions. Uh, the conflict itself has generated a lot of vested interests in continuing the conflict in both Armenia and Azerbaijan. And this is where I see the state's role as very, very important, which is these vested interests need to be combated somehow and need to be counteracted. Without that, uh, I think it will be very difficult. So, um, and, and I don't think it is the main impediment are, uh, are the societies I think the main impediment actually are the vested interests in both Armenia and Azerbaijan for maintaining this rhetoric and maintaining this, this state of hostility. And I'm going to just conclude by saying one thing. Uh, my, my wife and my sister kept criticizing me that I never say anything critical about Azerbaijan in these conversations. And now I, I hope they will be off my back. I have said something critical about Azerbaijan today. Thank you, Iman. Uh, Faris, uh, let's go to you very briefly. Just any final comments in the last minute or so, and then and then. Well, yeah, that, that's not my area of expertise, but I think it's really difficult to tell people not to mourn for their loss. It's really hard to to just just, just come down on people. But I think the states play very important role in terms of whether they're choosing peace or conflict. So. As I agree with Armand that investments in peace and different tools achieving peace needs to grow. And I mean, I think mentioned that too. We need to see tangible, tangible tools where people can interact and actually, you know, committees, reconciliation, truth committees or other ways. But people also need to interact with each other. And that needs to be facilitated by the states. It's, it's really, it will be hard to, to expect that from individual people. Thank you, Faris. I mean, uh, so we have no time. So I will just say that I want to thank you and I want to thank Arman and Faris. It was very interesting discussion. And my last message is really that we have to start this dialogue uh, and we need to find allies in Armenia, Azerbaijan and globally who will help us to develop this new software for dialogue that is needed very much. Thank you. Thank you, Amin. And I also want to very quickly thank all of the panelists for, for this excellent discussion uh, and uh, for uh, to the organizers of the conference for the chance to bring this important discussion here. Um, and again, I hope that we'll have opportunities to continue it in, in other forums.